Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. In this week's episode, we will be discussing Chapter 12 of American Baby by Gabrielle Glazer. We'll also bring on our guest, Michael Berman. If you'd like to skip forward to hear the guest interview, please look for the timestamp in our show notes. Thank you. So, as Louise just said, we're here to discuss breathing exercises, Gabrielle Glazer's American Baby. This also, we've mentioned the last couple episodes about our Patreons voting for our next book for next season. So we're kind of getting ready to close that out. So just remember, if you're a Patreon and you want a vote in what we read next season, maybe there's even a book we've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Just reach out to us either via the socials or you can email us me at gmail.com and give us your vote. If you're a Patreon, we are listening to your vote. If you're not a Patreon and you want to become one to give us some input, then please do. Please there, do. There are so many books out there that we haven't even known about. So Yeah. We're up to three, I think, in the running, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's um, kind of cool. So and thanks to the new Patreons. People are coming on. It's wonderful for us. So it really is. Well, here we are back to uh, this chapter again was just, I mean, Margaret and George having kids Mm. and moving, ultimately moving to the suburbs and becoming so, you know, societally accepted. And what at one point she said that the only thing that made her not acceptable prior Mm -hmm. was a piece of paper, a marriage certificate that was the difference between keeping her child and not keeping her child. It kind of blows my mind how they really stayed together and and I mean, became this family with several children. And the reason it's called breathing exercises, I like that too, because she kind of gets a little more modern in the childbirth process we go through with her with Lamaze and learning. Right, right. And being afraid to mm-hmm. go to lose, sleep, you know, go to, to go. Yeah. And then, you know, once they move to the suburbs and she becomes this whole, like then her, the parents move in as they get older and she's taking care of them. And then all the neighborhood kids and I highlighted the uh, woman once deemed unfit to be a mother had become one, in fact, for everybody. I love that line. She wasn't fit, but look at how wonderful she is now. <laughs> because of she, a piece of paper. Yeah, she was always fit. And she had the night terrors going on, too. Oh, gosh. And, and she as talk to George. Mm-hmm. Stephen slash David, as we yes. find out, he, too, mm-hmm. had nightmares. The reason I like this chapter, it's different than what we've been reading is because she does the sliding doors with what's going on with David, Stephen, and her at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the mother and the adopted mother of David slash Stephen, which I thought was an interesting sort of what everyone's going through at that moment. And he's going through anger, a lot of anger. He's he's getting, but he's got anger. And he's got this, you know, then he feels the several references to feeling guilty. And when he did bring it up to his adoptive mother, Esther, Uh Esther would basically shut down and not want to give him information. But then 
also she talked about the story that they were given by the adoption agency. Yes. They were focused on their education and they couldn't be parents. She was going to be a doctor or something or go into something. And so he was wondering, well, am I an inconvenience? Right. Weird message for him to hear. Wasn't that the, was I just inconvenient? Well, I mean, think about all, I think by and large adoption Mm -hmm. agencies in the baby scoop era told people, you know, they want she, your birth mother wanted what was best for you. And she didn't think she was able to take care of you. She yeah. was still in school. She needed to focus on school. You know, I had my, like, she was tall and athletic and <laughs> just all this stuff that was. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did have a lot of, there was something interesting that the mother Esther said, there was somewhere where someone asked her something about do you care that he's different and not yours or adopt? And she said, you're so brave to adopt someone else's child. Oh yeah. Which is a weird message too, because there's those messages too. And then she said, brave, is it brave to love? Because obviously like this Esther, David's parents really did love him. They just had no clue about what was going on with him or how to talk to him well, about because it. Mm-hmm. Nobody no. talked about it. Yeah. And it, and it made me sad because they were nice people that were trying to give him the best. And he had these, it was interesting because he's succeeding in all these areas, but he had these anger outbursts that were not normal. Right. Well, and he talked all about the feelings and what Mm -hmm. he felt. And then he got curious about his birth mother and where he came from. And he got very, you know, Esther gave him the most basic of information that she had, but she also wasn't willing to open up and talk about it. You know, stuff. Yeah. Right. Her stuff made it impossible (laughs) for the, you know, once again, the child, kind of taking care of everybody. And then also, as this really struck me too, I mean, Margaret was just such a thoughtful, kind being, you know, and she, as her parents got sick and George's parents got sick and then George himself got sick at like 38, he got gout, he got this, he got all sorts of, he had an autoimmune. Mm -hmm. Each time Margaret would call the Louise Wise Agency, I'm going to always call them out, a particularly horrible (laughs) agency, would call them up and it went from never call us again that we don't know who that baby is to thank you. We'll put this, we'll put this in his record and then never communicated that information to his family. Vital medical information that, you know. Three grandparents with cancer, very Mm -hmm. young. Mm-hmm. Her husband with problems. Yeah, they, that was the that was the message. She, the lady, literally said, "We'll put it in the file," and then never was told. Yeah, I bet they didn't even write it down. To be honest with you, probably not. I mean, yeah, probably not. The whole thing is it made me sad. This just that she had her first son. That's kind of where she went through a lot of stuff with talking about Margaret here, where she started to as her second son, but her first, you know, son that she could say was her son started to have those feelings of guilt too. Like, mm-hmm. am I cheating almost on my first son? Yeah. And where is he? And the part made me cry. Just what they went through, to, it, it still blows my mind that they stayed together and couldn't get their baby back. It's heartbreaking. I'm glad they're reintroducing him now too, David, because I want to see how we end up from the beginning to where we are. Yes. Yes. Well, I think obviously we know they reunite at some point. So I am very curious. curious. It's just, uh, I just love this book so much. I actually, Brenda, my stepsister ordered it. I'm, I, oh, good. I said, everybody, every everybody. person in this country should read this book to understand the history of adoption. Yeah, I think they should too. Maybe I'll give it out this year. It's gifts. Yeah. Coming up when we have gifts to give. I think it's a great thing. Our guest coming on brings up some stuff. 
that goes along with this with another yes. famous place, Louise Wise Agency, similar. This will be good to hear. All right. Well, you. we'll see you in just a minute. See you in a minute. Hello. Today we have a Patreon, one of our Patreons coming to us from Harker Heights, Texas, which is in central Texas, like between Dallas and Austin, if anyone's wondering. Mike Berman, thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you. Well, thank Hi, Mike. you, and Louise. Very nice to be here. Nice to meet you, so to speak, in, in person, as it were. Nice to meet you, too. I know. Thank you for becoming a Patreon, too. So that's very helpful to us. And I love your background. For anyone who's watching on YouTube, just like it's a a room of bookshelves, which is after my own heart. Me, too. Wonderful office. When I look at a house, I look at wall space. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I have a very hard time parting with books. I just can't, can't do it. Ebooks have made it possible for me to be stationary now. I don't have to move anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to cart them around. Well, tell us your story. Yeah, anxious to hear. Tell us. Okay. Tell us. Uh, I was born in 1945 on August 8th in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, in the General Hospital there, Nashville General Hospital. My mom was a 17 year old, 18 year old woman from Bay City, Michigan. And the day after my birth, she surrendered me for adoption. I remained in the hospital for 10 days for reasons I I can't determine. I don't know if that was normal at the time. It seems excessive even for then. But there's nothing in my record that indicates any problems or premature birth. I don't know if I was a full-term baby. I don't know my birth weight. That's not on my birth certificate either. So I don't know. But after 10 days, I was taken by train from Nashville to Memphis to the Tennessee Children's Home Society, which was notoriously run by Georgia Tan, who you all touched upon in your last episode. And I don't know how long I was there, but I do know that I was in New York City in the care of my adoptive parents on the 19th of September. I have a document. It's a a certificate of circumcision because my parents were Jewish Mm -hmm. and males are usually circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Of course, in my case, it would have been postponed. I'm assuming my dad would have done it as soon as he had wind that I was on my way. So probably within three days of that is when I was delivered to them. And when I say delivered, I was literally delivered. I was picked up in a train station, Grand Central Station in Manhattan, New York City. Much of what I'm going to tell you, I know from my record, which is interesting that I was able to get it. But some of what I'm telling you was was from my ex-wife. She was very close with my mom and they talked a lot about it. And she never mentioned any of this to me until but I. But when came. you say mom, do you mean your adoptive mom? My adoptive mom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who didn't mention it to you? Your your mom ex-wife. or oh your ex wife? Yeah. We all live in the same town. You know, yeah. And we get together regularly, and you know, it's yeah. it's a good situation. Yeah. When I finally had started searching in 2017, after I had gotten much of the information I needed, I approached my family. I think we were together for a birthday. And I used that opportunity to break the news that I had been uh, searching. It took you until you were. I was on just considerably, you know, through shy, middle age. And... Second birthday. Yeah. Wow. It was a combination of things, uh, largely seeing all these DNA ads, you know, they were on Facebook and wherever, you know, on the internet, just in general, like kept cropping up. And I have a background in biology. I studied biology in college and in graduate school. So the DNA thing was really intriguing to me. And then 
I thought of it as only the ethnicity. You know, when you know nothing, that's intriguing in, in and mm-hmm. of itself. But it was ex- expensive, and I, I felt a little queasy about doing it still, even though both my adoptive parents were long gone at that point. But nevertheless, I kept looking, and I know I was inching towards that anyway. And then one evening, I, I was on a telephone call with a first cousin of mine, an adoptive first cousin. She's older than me. And both our parents, my adoptive mother and her father, came to North America together. They, they were born in what is today Belarus. Mm-hmm. And my mother was born in 1915. And in 1922, right around there, uh, her two first cousins and their mother, that mother being a sister of her father, I know this is a little confusing. She lost her mother, my mom did, about a year or two after she was born. And her father wanted his sister to take my mother with them when they went to North America. And this was right after this First World War in Central Europe. There was a lot of confusion. The Russian Revolution had taken place. The Soviet troops, well, the Red Army troops were in that area. And those two first cousins would have been prime recruitment material in their late teens. And their father had gone on to Saskatchewan a few years earlier, which was a common strategy, I guess. The father would leave, get work, find housing, send money back, and then the wife and children would follow. So they were about to do that. And my mother's father beseeched them to take my mother with them, which they did. So this is, again, your adoptive mother. Uh, This is not your history. Okay. I generally uh, speak of my birth mother by her name, Carrie. Okay. Just, you know, it's easier. And my adopt, my birth father's name was Floyd. So that's how it's just, you know, just okay. simple. I was just confused about like getting all the it is history and when it was your, their, not your history. Like, yeah. biological. if I say yeah. mom, I'm talking, oh, dad, it's my parents. My okay. So anyway, they came to Saskatchewan and a few years later, that father had died and the boys were now young men and they had married. And one settled in Montreal and the other married an American woman and they immigrated into the United States. He, his mother, uh, my mother's aunt and my mother. But when they came into the United States through immigration, they claimed my mother as their sister and child. So I always knew these cousins uh, as my mother's brothers, because that's how they refer to each other. You know, once they crossed over, my mother was essentially informally adopted. So that's how I grew up knowing them. So did you grow up in, so they adopted you at, you got circumcised and born in New York, go to New York City on a train and grew up in, in New York City? Grew up in New York City in Brooklyn. Well, first in Queens, and then we moved to Brooklyn when I was about 10. Mm-hmm. And stayed there until I went off to college. And did you have any siblings? In 1950, my mother gave birth to, this is after 13 years of marriage, she gave birth to her first and only child, my brother. So he's four and a half years younger. But had they been trying? Was the adoption a result of infertility? They they had been married nine years when they first Uh, contacted Georgia Tan. So they assumed probably we're not having a baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And both his, my father had two siblings and they were married by this time. He was the youngest of the three and they all had children. And, you know, that's what you did. You got married Mm -hmm. and you tried to have children. I don't know if she had any miscarriages. I don't know where the fault lay, but eventually she did get pregnant. That was my, my brother. And he had tried, my dad had kept in touch with Georgia Tan 
one of the really? main, yeah, one of the amazing things that I found uh-huh. in my record when it came was this packet of letters exchanged between my dad and Georgia Tan. He was Georgia keep- Tan herself. Well, it was someone at the agency. signed off, and yeah. uh, I don't know if she or a secretary did that, but each one was signed with her signature. I assume. And he was trying to keep the lines of communication open because they wanted another child. They were hoping to get a little girl. So periodically he would write and, uh, you know, send a check, $15 or something to the home just to, now how they ever, this was- To line Georgia Tan's pockets. uh, How they ever found this place. Why a Jewish couple in New York City, 45, right? That's what I was thinking. Post-World War II, that's now the, the single biggest Jewish population in the world after the second world war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. They didn't go to the Louise wise agency. Exactly. Now yeah. I'm thinking that first of all, demand and supply might've been working against them mm. and they were a little older. My mother would have been about 29 at that point. My father was six years older than her. So that might've been working against them. I don't know. It could have been the money, the financial side of it, but somehow they got connected with this adoption agency in Tennessee. You know, I can't cross that T. I don't know how it happened. I have a suspicion, though. My dad had a brother-in-law who was in the same. He owned a boys and men's clothing store. And that's the line my dad was in. And at that time, he was working for his brother-in-law. Now, his brother-in-law was very well connected. He was a wealthy man. And he raced horses. And it's conceivable that he had reason to travel in the South, Kentucky. Yeah. Horse country. And he, also, he was politically connected. And there was a mayor, no, a governor of New York State, Layman, and he adopted a child through Georgia Tan, too. Mm-hmm. So, and every time my dad would send a check to Georgia Tan, there'd be an accompanying check from his brother in law. So I think that was the connection that he got him, you know, connected with Georgia Tan. He, he never had an it. opportunity to ask any of these questions, really. I never did. did you? Growing up, was what did you talk about your adoption or was it just? I always knew I was adopted. Mm-hmm. I've heard that before. And I had no idea where, how that came about. I mean, of course, it was a different era, right? Yes. Like you didn't, people didn't talk. Well, I could speak to them. I discovered because I did ask one question of my parents, of my father, and one question of my mother. And that was it. And both times they answered very quickly. They didn't seem to be in any way disturbed by it. But I never really went into depth. I was a happy kid. I had a good adoption. My parents were loving people. So I'll tell you what happened. Two things that made me think about adoption. One was in 1953 or so, 54, Walt Disney had a TV show. And they presented a a three-part series based on the life of Davy Crockett. And every chapter, every series episode started with like a song. And it went born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, green estate in the land of the free, killed him a bar when he was only three, a bear. Davy Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. And being a young eight-year-old or whatever, I used to fantasize that I could maybe be related to old Davy Crockett, my (laughs) great-grandpa, you know. And every kid in that era, every kid my age had a coonskin cap and a little flintlock pistol and yeah, and it was it was the first merchandised TV show, I think. And anyway, that passed into you know oblivion. But that was the first time I really kind of caught myself thinking about it. And then when we moved to Brooklyn, one day I was outside. I was waiting for a friend who lived next door, 
and we had plans to go bike riding. And he came out and he ran over to me and he said, Michael, did you know that you were adopted? <laughs> and I was kind of taken aback. And I said, well, yes, I know. How, why, why are you asking me? How do you know? Apparently, he overheard his mother talking with my mother. They were friends. They belonged to the same charitable organization. And he was a very bright kid. He was a single, uh, an only child. He used to call his parents by their first name, which I thought was amazingly <laughs> sophisticated and cool. <laughs> but, you know, he's so ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time. <laughs> he's the guy. He introduced me to reading, really. He took me, showed, uh-huh. we moved there. He, first thing he did is showed me where the library was. Are you yeah. still in touch? No, no. They moved away when I was still a kid and I never heard from them again. But later that day, when after we came back and I was, my mom was fixing dinner, and I was thinking about it. And I said, well, I, I do know, don't I? But how do I know? I have no recollection of that. And I just put it away, you know, and packaged it and went on my normal development. And when I was in high school, I sometimes worked in my dad's store. He owned his own business at that time. It was a men's, boys and men's shop. And I'd go in and clean up and sweep and fix stock. It was a quiet day. There were no customers. And my dad was at the front desk doing a crossword puzzle. So I walked up to the desk and I leaned over the counter and I said, Dad, can I ask you a question? I'm telling you, this took every ounce of courage that I could muster. I'm sorry. And he just looked up for me and said, sure, Mickey, what can I do for you? And I said, Dad, was I adopted? And he looked kind of puzzled. And he said, yes. Mike, making, you always knew that. And I said, Dad, I did, but I have no recollection of how I know. And he said, well, Mom used to tell you, we told you when you were young, probably a toddler. And but Mom read that story to you a number of times. I said, ah, so, okay, a story. He said, well, it was a book that was commonly used, and we tailored it to the, meet the circumstances, and you liked the story. And so you would ask Mom to read it occasionally, and she would. We always assumed that sooner or later you would ask questions, and we were perfectly ready to tell you what we oh. knew, which is not very much, frankly. And anyway, I said at that point, I just, you know, okay, that was enough, you know, and that was cool. It was like uh, overload for you at that yeah, age. Yeah, like, that's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. information overload. And then a couple of years, I, I was still in high school, so it may have been that year or, or a little later. I was in the kitchen doing my homework and my mom was, you know, getting dinner ready and she was a few feet away from me. And I said, mom, when did you and dad go to Tennessee? And she didn't even look up. She was just continuing. She said, you know, we never had to go to Tennessee. We never went. And I said, oh, okay. And I just went back to my, you know, algebra and whatever. <laughs> I was doing. And I just, and I, I just never knew what to do with that. They were open, but not giving of information. So you're like, I think they would have. I I had no inkling that they were even remotely embarrassed or shocked or or Mm -hmm. worried about it. They answered matter of factly. I'm absolutely certain I could have just gone on with it. But I love my parents and I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to go there. I just, if I could have had a magic wand and said, you know, I'm now your biological child. That's what I would have done. I would have just erased that whole thing. Did you have different characteristics or stuff than yeah. your family, than your yeah, mother, your father, and your brother? And Okay. So maybe that was kind of a, you were shielding yourself. Like, I don't, I can't, I don't want to accept this or know this or. Well, you know, it's only now that I, I'm, I put pieces together. Yeah. Because I have the vocabulary now to understand it. Yeah. You know, that's one of the big things that really struck me reading 
the primal wound is that concept of pre-verbal memory. Mm-hmm. Because we, we experience things, but without words, we can't recall it. You know, we process thought with words. Without words, we're intellectually mute with, to ourselves. But the damage is there, the fright. I mean, a, a, a baby, human, severed from its mother has got to be the most, it's an existential crisis, mm-hmm. yeah. the worst kind. And if you're in a place where you really are being handled and gently and people are talking to you and, you know, you're getting regular feedings and, and, you know, that might be mitigated to an extent. If you're going literally from one mother to the next, that might mitigate it to some extent. But still, it's there. It is. And, you know, but you need the language to think about it. And I never, you know, I just put it out of my mind because I was happy. I had a Mm -hmm. good child and my parents loved me. They were very affectionate and they were demonstrative too. They, you know, I was telling my kids once recently, we had some guests coming over. We were at my ex-wife's for Thanksgiving and and one of my son's friends came in and they, they all walked over, shook his hand, patted his shoulder. And it occurred to me that in the entirety of my life with my parents, I never shook my father's hand. If I tried to do that, he would just bat it out of the way and get me in a bear hug. So, were you close to your brother? Yes, but we were four and a half years apart. Yeah, you know, so our lives were always out of sync. Yeah, he's different. He's different than I am in many ways, but we love each other. We get along. He lives in Connecticut. I don't see him that much, but when I was ten, he was five. You know what? A five-year-old and a ten-year-old don't have. Yeah. And then when he was ten, I was fifteen. I was in high school. You know, I was. I have the same thing with my brother. You get yeah. you get older and you become friends again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. For the first time in many ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was fifteen, I was in college, and when, uh, he was in college. I was back in New York going to graduate school. So our lives were constantly out of sync. And when he graduated and kept from, we went to school in Connecticut. He stayed up there, and that's where he continued. he still lives. Mike, I have a question for you. When you were like in relationships and stuff, you know, after high school, you went off to college. I know you've been married and married again, right? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And um, we're separated now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, did the, because I have a little bit of the same thing where I push things down, but then they come up in relationships and things like that. I was wondering, did things, kind of start clicking when you're reading things like, oh, yes, my goodness. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, sometimes it's hard to know. I mean, people are not adopted, have problems too. Yeah, so you know, but, very often there are similar problems. A lot of people have trouble with relationships for, you know, maybe the right way they were raised. Adoption has its unique entry point, but it's not, you know, the only way yeah. you can traumatize kids. But there's some things that I know absolutely were a product of adoption because, I used to have this, it was like this anger that would, you know, just always beneath the surface. And sometimes it was, it would bubble up and somebody would say something that was offensive or, you know, mildly irritating, the kind of thing you might get angry or a little perturbed about, but I'd blow it out of proportion. And then later I'd be totally, you know, completely embarrassed by it. I said, why did I do that? You know, and this would happen over and over again. And if I were alone and I dropped something, I'm very clumsy. And I drop, I, I drop at least one glass of whatever every year, at least. And it shatters. I only use plastic now <laughs> for that reason. But if I did something stupid like that, I would just, even if I were alone, I kick and curse and it, it would just be ridiculous. And now when it happens, I just laugh, you know, and I go get a mop in a room and, but it was always there. And I know that 
very often I would flare up over things that just didn't warrant that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. And I, cons- I consulted with a psychologist after I had started this. I remember asking my, my wife, we were again at my ex-wife's house, which is where we usually meet. And they were, my ex was fixing some stuff to eat. And uh, we were sitting at the counter, my wife and I had, I told her about this book. And I said, does that make sense to you? Now they're both women who gave birth. And I explained it. And my wife immediately said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That is, there's definitely uh, something to that. And you need mm-hmm. to look into that. I found a psychologist who was willing to speak with me on the phone initially, just to feel me out. And I explained, you know, my age. And I said, look, I'm not going to go into long-term therapy. I just need some, to ask some questions, maybe have somebody ask me a few probing questions, kind of see what they think. Somebody who knows about adoption, treats adoptees, and maybe can recommend reading. And of course, the first book she recommended, I already had by that point. I found that from Facebook groups. But I had a couple of conversations and she told me that we talked about anger. And she said, well, of course you were. Of course you have this unresolvable anger. And I said, how? Well, you were abandoned. What do you think a young child or a young animal, how they react? Fear elicits anger. Anger allows you to fight back. They're intertwined. And because you can't recall that doesn't mean it's not there. And this has been going on since you were a child. And it was like, it just washed out of me. And you mean that your anger left? Anger. It was just just the knowledge. And the way I knew it was when I, again, knocked over something. I don't remember what it was. And I just got, you know, down on my knees and cleaned it up, picked up all the shards, mopped up the mess, and just went on to whatever I was doing. And then I stopped and I thought, wait a minute, well, how am I doing this? And it's been like that ever since. It's that, the knowledge, the knowledge of what's exactly happened right. with and us. And then my mind just reworked it and now it's gone. So if you had, this is maybe more than you want to share. So you had your ex-wife and your current soon to be ex-wife <laughs> are friends. So, yeah, well, I'm you're all friendly because I have yeah. that in my life yeah. too. So yeah. have you discussed with them like how you were in relationships where you guarded or? No, not really. At this point, I don't know that. I think my ex-wife would be a little harder to deal with that um, because I think she's a little more, not anti, but you know, the, when we grew up, psychology was not something that was uh, yeah. common. You know, people didn't just go to psychologists to deal with like family issues and things like that. It was something you dealt with on your own if, or you didn't. And then yeah. again, the divorce was not easy. So people tended to stick with it and, you know, um, maybe they didn't benefit, but maybe the kids did, you know, I mean, my wife and I, my ex-wife and I, we, we never in fisticuffs, you know, or anything. Right. Like that. Right. We changed and we had problems and we didn't work it out. And maybe we could have, I, I don't know. It's hard to so go in time. You went to college, you went to grad school. When did you get married? And then this kind of two-part question then, because many adoptees who are parents talk about that connection, the first biological connection. Did you have any kind of light bulb moment with the birth of your children? Or Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, my first wife, she's from Holland. When I met her, uh, she was working upstate New York in resort hotels. She would come here for six months and up there, they would hire you without a work permit, you know, that kind of thing. And she got a lot of tips. So she, she went home with a lot of money. And this was in the early 60s. So uh, Holland was still 
feeling the effects of the Second World War. There were, you know, things were tight. And she could buy things for her parents, you know, uh, carpeting, things like that, that most people wouldn't have. So she kept doing that. And I ended up this one particular summer as her busboy. So she was a waitress in the dining room and I was her busboy. And I had been very, very shy with girls. I had not really had any successful relationships. And for some reason, maybe her greater maturity, I don't know, but we hit it off. And she wasn't Jewish. And that was going to be a problem with my parents. It didn't matter to me. But fortunately, she herself had had a very, very close relationship with a Jewish family in Holland, a family that had survived Auschwitz. And she was very, very close to the the mother of that family, this older woman. And she worked for them. In, they owned some uh, shoe stores, a very high line or high brow shoe stores. So she worked for them. And she always felt an affinity for them and had a great respect for Judaism and, and the Jewish people. So she, for her, conversion was something she was going to do anyway. But there was a rocky road there with my parents. But once they got to know her, uh, they embraced her. And we got married after my first year of graduate school. And then during my second year, I got drafted. And the Army let me finish my first year. But then July of 69, I had to go. In, in the army. So I was gone mm-hmm. for two years. We lived in a place that was very, it, it was, we didn't live with my parents, but we lived in the same structure. We mm-hmm. had separate, like living areas. In and Brooklyn? In Brooklyn. Yeah. This was all in Brooklyn. I moved to Brooklyn when I turned 10 that summer, just in time for the Brooklyn Dodgers to win the series. So. <laughs> and then they deserted us. To, anyway. Um, we don't want to go there. That was really traumatic. You talk about trauma in your life. That was that was a primal wound of, of magnitude. So uh, anyway, it was. You, but you, you just get abandoned first yeah, by your mother, right. then that's the right. Brooklyn Dodgers. That's right. That's another wound. I haven't even begun to address that yet. So I think it was at times like that that she and my parents really bonded. It's, they were very very close. And my mother did talk to her a lot. And it wasn't until, you know, at that dinner table, when I was showing my family, I had this whole book of adoption record, you know, and I brought it with me and we were going through that. And my wife says to me that, you know, mommy told me about how when they got you, that you were very, very dirty. And that the first thing they did was they took you to an emergency room. Oh. And I said, uh, she knew all these things that you didn't know. That's interesting. (laughs) How do you know this? She said, my mommy told me. So mom told you, and you never brought this up. And she kind of went, you know, (laughs) I just didn't think you wanted to know. And she said that I was dehydrated and I had to be dewormed. Oh, my God. So before they even took me to their apartment, they took me to Elmhurst General Hospital. And the doctor said, yeah, this kid is in bad shape. You know, just think of what's going on down there. Well, that year in 1945, there was a three month period where 50 kids, upwards of 50 kids died of some kind of intestinal disease uh-huh. in, 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 the, in the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Wow, gross. Yeah, it was the Memphis branch that was the notorious one. And you probably would have, too, if you didn't get on that train. Who knows? With worms. And- Who knows? Yeah. Adoption is not a good thing. Nobody will ever say it's a, it's a, at best a second rate solution at best. And many yes. times it's not even that. Yeah. Uh, one person I heard say recently, you can never heal the primal wound. 
but a good yeah. adoption can be addressing. And, good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, and I thought so. My parents did not cause my mother, my you know Carrie, to give me up. She did that for whatever reasons, you know, understandable or not. And I learned from my adoption record that 17 months before she gave me up, she had another child. So she would have been just on the cusp of 16 at that time and put that child up for adoption. Only that child was adopted in Michigan. So, so you have a half sibling. We have, well, I have several because after two years after I was born, Carrie married, she got married and she had a daughter in 47. She had another daughter in 48 and then a third daughter in 57. Oh, now, yeah. now are there are any of these siblings? Do you know any of them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious because you went your entire life until 2017, you decide you're taking the DNA test up to prior to that point, you were, let's say less than curious about your history. I was, and my parents' history too, like so many American kids, I wanted to be part of the melting pot. I didn't want to be a hyphenated American. My father was born in, in New Haven. My mother, as I said, was born in what is today Belarus. But my father's parents came from Russia in 1904 and settled in New Haven, Connecticut, where my dad was born and his siblings. I never asked about that. I never wanted to know. I wasn't a Russian-American. You know, mm -hmm. if I'd ever said that in front of my father, he probably would have been, you know, slightly miffed. But yet now you see all these kids, maybe fourth generation, third generation in the United States. And genealogy is a booming industry. Yeah. People want to know where they come from. Identity suddenly is important. Now, you asked me before about appearance, and I was incandescently white when I was a kid. I had platinum hair in most of the photographs, the black and white photographs, of course. You can't even see my eyebrows. They don't even show up. And the first time I really was aware of it, though, was at a when my brother was bar mitzvah. We took a group photo, and when the photo was developed, and I saw the four of us together, I was amazed at how my brother was starting to morph into my father. And later in life, I mean, they were like identical twins. My father was his hair was white from as far back as I can remember. I don't know how old he was when his hair started to turn gray, but I only knew him as somebody who had white hair. He kept his hair, uh, you know, more than me, unfortunately. And my brother had that same thing. I mean, he was just white when I still had, you know, light brown hair. But he kept it all. He has a really thick, full head of hair. But I think that was the first time I was really aware of it, you know. And from that point on, I did think more about it. I would look in the mirror and i try to say, you know, how could I morph you know, into these people? <laughs> and, it, and then when you had your children, because we, well, you were starting to answer done. that question. Yeah. He was born by C-section, so I wasn't there to see it. But, but your the, connection to him, did that when look you... At him, yeah. The hair. And now I have blue eyes. You know, I was a typical tan baby, blonde hair, blue eyes. His eyes were brown like his mother's, but his hair was white. Well, you can't see the picture, but I mean, he was a stunning child. That combination was just striking. But I could see features in him, even as a baby. And as he got, got older, you know, more and more of that developed and his personality was more like me, you know, unfortunately for him. He's a did black you finally, <laughs> did you feel like a sense of grounding? Mm -hmm. It helped. It helped. And then I had uh, my next son was born three years later and it, it was also C-section and my daughter, although she looks much more like her mother physically is much more like me in the personality. And we get along very, very well. 
and she has embraced this whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So tell us that. Mm -hmm. So 2017, you. So I decided to do this. Yes. And the first thing I did was I I went online and went to the Tennessee site, state of Tennessee. And I started to see what was available in terms of records because I had no idea. And I read down this paragraph that were this long number of paragraphs for how you get adoption records, who can get what. And I was so nervous doing this. I mean, I really was. I wasn't even paying attention. So I got all the way to the bottom of the page. I said, I have no idea what I just read. And I was about to scroll back up. And I saw that there was like a a heading. It was more print below. So I scrolled down and it said for people born prior to 1951. So I said, oh, that's interesting. So I scrolled down a little further and it made it very, very clear that if you were born prior to 1951 and adopted in Tennessee, you could and would get your records. All you had to do is prove who you were, identity. So there was a little form to fill out. I did that. And within half an hour, I got an email. It went into greater detail of what would serve as identifying papers and so forth. The next that fast. That's that fast. Wow. That fast. These people in the post-adoption unit, that's what they call it in Tennessee, were the most amazing public servants I have ever dealt with. That's amazing. Yeah. Everything I asked them that I got an answer like instantly. If I texted them something or I emailed them at nine o'clock at night, first thing when they open in the morning, I get them, you know, a response. It was always like that. They were really. So anyway, I went out that as soon as I got through with that, it was still morning, late morning. I went out. I had the papers. I scanned them on my scanner. So I took my birth certificate, my Tennessee birth certificate, my phony birth certificate, my driver's license, my military ID. And I went to the bank, got a notary to sign all these things, stamp it and everything, put it in an envelope, put in the fee, and it was out. And two weeks later, I got an email saying that I'd been approved. So now they said, we have to go gather your records. This can take from three to five months. And this is the fee that was required. So I sent that check in. It was, you know, it was a little more expensive, but it wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. a, show, a show breaker. And I thought, okay, so three to five months. Now I'm going to start doing this DNA testing earnestly. So I ordered the test. I tested on all four sites naively, not knowing that you could download from some yeah. and go to others. <laughs> and then when the results started coming in, and now I was faced with, you know, I knew nothing. I had the slightest clue. I still believe that whoever she was, my mother was, and my father probably were in Tennessee, right? Lived there, were born there. So I didn't know anything. But little by little, you know, I, I understand DNA quite well. So I knew how, how it works. And I was able to learn the, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, just like y'all probably did. You tested, mm-hmm. right? Did mm-hmm. you vote? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So little by little, I, I started to realize that one camp was strictly Eastern European, which was interesting and ironic. And the other yeah. camp was more Northeastern European and British Isles. No surprise, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, where mm-hmm. else did I come from? But both camps, ground zero for these families was Bay City, Michigan. Huh. Tennessee never showed up in anything. So that remained a puzzle until I got my, my record, actually. But about a month in, I was starting to, you know, I was starting to feel my way around. And I had this match. It was like 500 something centimorgans. So it was the highest match I had up until then. So I wrote to this. It was, his name was Josh. And I wrote to Josh and he wrote back to me immediately. He was still online. And he was a 20-year-old kid in Michigan. 
And his girlfriend had bought him a test for his birthday. So he didn't really have any interest. He had no knowledge of genealogy and no ambitions to do any genealogy. (laughs) But he he said his mother wants to do this. And also he has an aunt who had started a family tree on, on ancestry. But as far as he knew, she never took a test. But he said, let me get in touch with my mom and she will put you in touch with my aunt, which she did. And this person, her name is Beth. She agreed to help me because she had, it was a maybe 300 person tree, but she had, you know, the nuts and bolts of it and the beginnings of it. And because of my match with this kid, Josh, I knew we were pretty closely related because Josh is her nephew. So we start working together and she's, she was devoting, this was in the summer. So she was off and she had a lot of time to devote. So we worked together and I mean, we'd work morning to night. You know, I was retired, so I had the time. And little by little, we were we were starting to put things together. And it looked more and more like this was my maternal line. So it comes up, it was the 29th of September. I'll never forget it. And we had been working all day. And it was like 1030 at night. We're both bleary-eyed. And all of a sudden, she says to me, do you see what I see? And I look at the screen where we had just been working. And it dawned on me that one of these three sisters has got to be my mother. And one of those three sisters is Beth's mother. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with either, you know, a, a first cousin or a half sister. Half sister. So of the three girls, one was married already when I would have been conceived. So that would be in mid-November of 44. The other two would have been teenagers. Carrie would have been 17, just about to turn 18. And Mary, the other one would have been 15, 16, something like that. And Elizabeth was married, as I said. And so it seemed unlikely that she would, you know, she she was just married, I think, in 1941. So this would have been only three years later. You know, not impossible, but we just narrowed it down to Carrie and Mary. And I said, well, you know, there's nothing we can do to settle that right now because all the matches are going to be the same regardless. And I should be getting my record because earlier that week, so this was on a Friday night, I got an email that they had gotten my records together. And, you know, far earlier than they had anticipated or that they told me. And they gave me an option of either coming to Nashville to look at the records and I could have whatever I wanted. Or in lieu of that, they could just copy everything and mail it to me. So and that's what I, I told them to do that. I sent them a check for the copying fee was 12 cents a page, maybe. And the yeah. post. So I figured it would be coming the following week, you know. In, in the event, I got up the next morning, Saturday morning, and right to my right here is a window that opens up and looks out at the street and my mailbox. So I'm doing, you know, stuff, checking my matches like I do every morning of my life now. And <laughs> I saw the mail truck come. And I ran down to the mailbox, not anticipating that there would be anything in there, but there was this big fat manila envelope. And I pulled it out and I looked at the return address and it said post adoption unit, Nashville, Tennessee. And I just, I can't tell you the reaction I had. Uh, my hands were shaking. I was starting to hyperventilate. So I went up to the house and I have an island on, in my kitchen and I put the package there and I, I just leaned against the other counter and I just looked at it. And I started to walk around the counter. I poured some ice water for myself and little by little, I settled down. So I opened this envelope and I pulled it out and it was just, I mean, 50 pages. If, if, if wow. More. And I started to kind of, you know, divide it up. And I sent you that sheet, right? That Mm -hmm. it was the social workers notes. Mm -hmm. That alone was, you know, 
a trove of, of information. In depth. Yeah. In depth. Turns out that Elizabeth, I was born in Tennessee because Carrie went to visit her sister in Tennessee. Her sister was married to a man who was in the military, 1944. Big, you know, big surprise. He was stationed at an air base just south of Nashville called Smyrna. And I think that air base was in operation until the 1970s. And so she was living there. And Carrie, in her seventh month, decided this one's going to be born away from home. And she went to stay with her sister, went into labor, went to, took a cab to the hospital and gave birth to me 20 minutes after admission. And then the next morning signed the, the adoption and uh, the surrender agreement. Which when I you own. got all these records, Everything. was Carrie, no, but when you got them, was Carrie still alive? No, she died in 91. Okay. And, and, this was and your father, your, your biological uh, He boy? died in 1960, uh, before, ah. his 59, before his 60th birthday. He was born in 1909, which ironically was the year that my adopted father was born. Hmm. So there's another. And this whole thing about Michigan, because that's where my mother grew up. I mean, she was born overseas, but she grew up in Michigan. We used to go to Michigan to visit her family there. So anyway, all of these things are just there. And I'm, I'm stunned. And of course, now I know that Beth is, in fact, my sister. I know now that I had another brother, another adoptee before me. I was looking forward to being like the, you know, the, the patriarch of the family. And now I was promoted <laughs> to second place. And we had a hell of a time finding him because in one place in my record, it noted that it was a female, uh, which obviously wasn't. And I think that was either somebody misunderstood or Carrie was just intentionally just misdirecting people. Because several things that were in that record were just false. She yeah, said, her, he said the father was 23 years old. In fact, my birth father at the time of conception was 35 years old. Oh, Floyd. Well, we do, we do know that adoption agencies in that era typically did falsify a lot of but information. So I'm not sure Carrie can take all the heat for that. I don't but, know. You're right. But, you're yeah. absolutely right. Um, I don't know. There's no way. But other things did come up, you know, accurate. But that was obviously false. But, and this is funny, because it was another clue that really was important later as I started getting more and more into my research. Wherever it asked for the name of the father, it was blank, except in a few places. Uh, one of those was on the surrender agreement, a couple of other places. And in lieu of a name, I mean, in, instead of a blank space, there was the name Floyd Doe, like John Doe. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, you know, that's weird. I knew about John Doe. Everybody knows that John Doe, Jane Doe. I thought, well, maybe in Tennessee, that's what they did. You know, maybe it was Floyd Doe in the South. Who knows? But that name stuck with me. And later on, when I came down to it, that was the name of my birth father. His actual name was Florian, which is a Polish name. Because he was born in the United States, but and his parents were too. But the next generation were immigrants from Poland. And they were still using Polish names very often in that era. But he went by Floyd Edward, and his last name I can't pronounce. It's K-A-S-P-R-Z-Y-K. So eight yeah. letters, one vowel. So you were never really able to find out their story and what, no, what, no. how they got together. And have you since now connected with all of your siblings? And where do you stand now in this well, moment? Well, Beth and I, it. it turned out, I called Beth as soon as I could catch my breath. you know, And I made copies of that, of, of several documents that I sent it to her. Mm -hmm. And of course, I told her when I called her, I said, you, you got to sit down because she didn't know anything. And we had one sister still alive. They were both in Michigan, but one had died in 2010. 
the other died in 2020 in, in May. So, but I did get to know her through email, Facebook, and, and so on. But Beth, it turns out, was living here in Texas. Ah. She's, she's an hour and a half from me. She lives in College Station. And we met. So, you know, in you know, September, I got my record the next September 30th. And we met for the first time in a town near here called Temple, just before Thanksgiving in 2017. And right after, yeah. Her son was coming here to get a job interview in a big hospital complex. He's a, he's a nurse, a pediatric nurse. So I thought, well, that's great. I'll get to meet my nephew. And I said, look, you and your husband come. I'll get a motel room for both of us. We'll stay the night. We'll meet up about lunchtime while Daniel, her son, is in his meetings. And then we'll, we'll head out for dinner. And then we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll stay overnight and we'll head out in the morning. So we did that. And we're in the hotel waiting for Daniel because this was about five o'clock in the evening. And he had all day interviews. So, it was, you know, it was a long haul for him. And I got a call from my daughter. She asked if she and her husband could join us. Oh, and I was just, I was so touched by that. And I said, of course you can, you know, and I told her where we were. So they drove out and then Daniel came in, he ran upstairs to the shower and changed real quick. And we all went out to dinner and we had a wonderful time. So that was the first time we met. And it's so uh, connecting, really it isn't it? It's so it, connecting. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, we don't look anything alike, but our personalities are very much the same. Our sense of humor is spot on. I mean, it's been good. And eventually through DNA testing, I had a match with a, a woman who turned out to be my brother's, our half brother's daughter. And she was still online when I messaged her. She was still logged into Ancestry. And within a few minutes, we found each other. And she was, she messaged me back. She said, you can't see it, but I'm bawling my eyes out right now. Aww. It was that quick. It was just instantaneous. And he lives in Rhode Island, so we haven't met, but we talk on the phone all the time. And how was his, I mean, it's his story, but how was his life? His life was, he didn't fit in his family very mm-hmm. well. They were a very academic family. I mean, they treated him well. It wasn't like he was misused or anything, but he wasn't an academic type. And his father had been in taught engineering in a, in a college. His adoptive mother was a principal in two schools in Bay City. So when he got out of high school, he joined the Navy and he never went back. But and he I mean, was was he excited to have the connection? Oh yeah. 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 So so all in all, this has been a really happy reunion. Yeah, yeah the reunions have you. been great. And there's yeah. more reunions because I found out later. Remember that niece I, I said who put me in touch with Beth? She didn't know who her father was. Her mother, a half-sister who had died years before, had told her that she was the result of a gang rape. Oh, dear Lord. That was true. I can't imagine telling that to your daughter. No. She believed that her whole life. And so Beth bought her a DNA test a couple of years ago for Christmas. And she asked me to do the research because she doesn't know how to do that as well. And in turn, I did find her father. And it was not like her mother said, she was welcomed by the, her father with open arms. She uses his last name now. They lived that's in the pre- same That's family. pretty hurtful to be raised with, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Mike, it does sound to me like you have a whole new, you could be an adoptee search angel. <laughs> well, I, think I that, know. That's something you should lens, look into. Before yeah, we end. Right. In yeah. doing that, I found out that my sister Beth was only a half aunt to this niece. Mm. she's my half niece and it was very obvious. So now, now Beth was born nine years after 
the last of her sisters. She had two sisters born 20, 47, 48. She was born in 57. And I've seen that happen before. When there's a gap like that, it's a warning sign. And I called Beth and I told her this. And she said, you know, it's not entirely a surprise. Her parents divorced when she was six. The other two were older. They were in their teens already. The judge allowed the girls, the older girls, to pick which parent they wanted to go with. They both picked their father, which says something mm. about her mother. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, so Beth was adopted. And I found her, I'm not adopted, but was an illicit child, mm. <laughs> you know, like the rest of us. And I found her father. He was 92 years old, still living in Michigan. She went to see him a year Aww. after the <laughs> lockdowns and all that. Yeah. And then he died several months after they met. But uh-huh. she took a beautiful photo and they're just, you know, the resemblance is just remarkable. Several months after he died, she got a phone call from a half sister of hers to tell her that their father had added her to his will. Aww. And it was a substantial size. She didn't tell me and I didn't ask, but I know that it was very, uh, came very good time knows. for this. And I thought, you know, it doesn't get any sweeter than that. And she's no, mentioned in the obituary. And that's healing. So right now, the only children of Carrie's that are alive are her three illicit kids. All of the <laughs> fathers, you know, all the black sheep of the family. The other two are now gone. And all of us were born on Wednesday. So I don't know if you knew that child's Wednesday you know, kids. Monday's child is full of grace. Tuesday's child is something or other. But yeah. Wednesday's child is full of woe. Ah. So when I saw that, I'm going to go, I'm going to look up and see what day of the week I was born. I'd (laughs) say Wednesday. I was Friday the 13th. So I'm a little afraid. Friday the 13th? Yeah. (laughs) Friday the 13th was a woe. Well, Mike, this has really been interesting and and such a fascinating conversation. And every episode I've heard, uh, you know, when I found you guys, it was very early, I think. I don't remember exactly, but it's been great. And uh, I see great success. And, You've been uh, a great friend to us and on social media and also just as a Patreon. And we are going to take it. your vote for the book that <laughs> yes. you're putting forward. Make sure so you we'll send, send us the links. I will do that. Send us the links. And, and, and uh, much success. I hope it continues. I'm doing the best you. I can to spread the word. Thank so, you. We really appreciate that. You're doing a great job and, and your stories are wonderful. Even though, I mean, it's amazing the juxtaposition and, uh, you know, you're still so close together because we yeah. yours was obviously a different route. Than than Louise's, and we're, we're all in it together. We all seem yeah. to be doing okay. So yes, better to be here than not. So absolutely, couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> right. Thank you, Mike. Thank I'll you, Mike. You again. God bless. Thank you. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye. Bye. That was that, fascinating. Yeah. Well, also just, I find it so interesting that it wasn't until he was in his seventies. I mean, everybody has their path, right? Everybody has their path. You know what? The whole thing, what I'm thinking about is this little baby being put on a train. As a dirty, dirty, worm, dehydrated, dehydrated, stuck on a train, sold. I mean, really? And you know, that's the the book you would like us to read has to do with that Georgia tan and uh-huh. what went down. It just ups that part. Just think that look at this baby. I mean, all the stuff later. Yes. But that's just the, the start of his life. Yep. Yeah. It was painful. I like oh. that he's helping people too. Right yes. Now. And he's become, you know, a pro genealogist. That's so He really has. Yeah. I like the yeah. three illicit children. Yes. Well, you should have him help you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, I pretty much have all my yeah. answers now, but uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, what do we say? Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. Bye.